Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Threat Show. I'm your host, Robert Wagner, and with me, we have Threat Show co-hosts Darian Kinlan, VP of Technology at Fletch, and Chris Wilder, Director of Research at Tag Cyber. And with us today, we also have a special guest, Michael Kafka, aka Silicon Shecky. Hi, Mike. Good day. Hey, Mike's going to talk to us in our second segment of the show about some interesting stuff, including the importance of tuning security tools talking a little bit about EDR systems in particular. And he's also going to give us some advice for those of you looking to break into the InfoSec field. But let's get started first with a burn down of the interesting threats of the week. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you've, if you've been living on, under a rock for the past two weeks, this has definitely absorbed most of the oxygen that's been covered by cybersecurity industry experts. You really would have to be asleep for the past, I think, two weeks to not recognize this issue. But so far, we were tracking at least 59 different publications that have covered these vulnerabilities. And it really started with you know, everyone's fear that this was going to be the next heart bleed, right? Well, so we found 119 indicators across those almost 60 yeah. articles. Yeah, it's wow. Um, so tell us about it. What what is what is this threat? Yeah. So I mean, OpenSSL originally made a quote unquote pre-announcement uh, a week back, saying, "Hey, look, we think we found something. It's bad. It's critical." Everyone immediately jumped to, "Okay, this is another heart bleed situation." So everyone was already you know, kind of like bracing for the next wave of, I don't know, digital Pearl Harbor, maybe. <laughs> um, it turns out, though, that once they actually did announce the details of this vulnerability two days ago on November 1st, it was downgraded from critical to high. It's a vulnerability oh. specifically within OpenSSL version 3, and it has to do with triggering a buffer overflow from a maliciously crafted email address in a certificate, an X509 cert. And the, the conditions that are needed to get this to trigger are such that it's not expected to be widespread, which is great. Yeah. But wow. unfortunately, you know, everyone didn't quite get the memo. And so everyone is working overtime <clears throat> to try to focus on not only how to fix and address this, but... I think every vendor and their mother has some sort of blog post covering this issue. <laughs> and Chris, it sounded like uh, you guys <clears throat> might have run into some of this as well. Yeah, I'm seeing it pretty isolated within kind of the industrial landscape. A lot of companies have OT systems and they put, you know, Debian Linux systems out on the edge or, or whatnot. And we're, we're seeing it really there. That's where most of the concern is coming from. Mm. So it's it's going to be, you know, the, the big thing on it is, just keep your open SSL updated and patch you 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 should be fine but it's it's I think it's going to be interesting in IoT and OT environments and check have you seen uh, anything from your end as uh, as a security engineer has this popped up on your radar it's been popping up since open SSL made the announcement last week that there was a patch coming from the people that I talked to and the people that I know of out there that are dealing with this, all of them really stood down and are shocked at the amount of hype that this got. Oh yeah. And there's a, there's an actual worry in the security engineering side of things that this is a case of chicken little sky is falling. And <laughs> what sort of harm is this gonna do to us going forward when there is something more? And it's not because 
they misattributed it to being a critical immediately before they ever released all the information. It's that once they understood the information, they waited until the patch was released to show the downgrade. Yeah, if they would have okay. shown the downgrade a couple of days beforehand, because they announced this about a week or so before they did the patch. Right. If they would have announced once they realized that, oh, this is not going to be as easy to go ahead and use by the attacker attacking world out there, they that could have stepped everything down. We're in a high stress situation as it is anyways, with all the new threats that come out on a regular basis. So tossing extra stress on top of that without backing it off and immediately the once they knew <laughs> is uh is not so good for us in the long run yeah, but we, we live on stress right yeah, uh, yeah. it's the yeah. other frustrating thing that we've heard from from others that were tracking this early on was just you know how many vulnerabilities was it was it one was it two was it five was it ten you know just some order of magnitude of, hey, how many of these things are there? And then also, why not just at least mention a CV identifier on this thing, sure. even without necessarily revealing the details, just so that people can communicate and be confident that they're talking about the same thing. There were so many articles <laughs> talking about previous older vulnerabilities and going into wild detail around that, but it does not pertain to this particular latest uh vulnerability and that's that's yeah. another point of confusion honestly well, I, I, I don't know after, what i was gonna say i think after log4j i think the entire industry has gotten completely gun shy and we, we tend to overreact a little bit michael to your point you're, you're absolutely spot on and there's really no reason for all the hype but it's there and you've got to deal with it and i think it also shows the difference between an open project like open ssl yeah. and a closed project as far as the communication levels go, if you've got somebody like Microsoft or Palo Alto or Apple, they're going to have PR people. They're going to have a better communication <laughs> right. channel as opposed to, and it's not nothing against open source projects or anything, as opposed to something open source where there might not be that structure in place to actually do the yeah. proper communication levels. All right. Well, thanks for the good rundown. So not as bad as we thought, still patch. Well, we're, I know we're a broken record on that, but patching is your friend. Get it done. Yeah, moving next on our list is the latest zero-day reported by Google. Uh, this actually was an exploit that found in the wild, essentially the seventh uh, reported by Google. So now it's, you know, it's almost like a race as to which app is going to have the most zero days in a year. Is it going to be Google? <laughs> is it going to be Apple? Who knows, right? Take that <laughs> I think Apple's still in the lead, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's widespread impacting. Thankfully, the update mechanism for Google Chrome is pretty simple. Most users will already have the update deployed. They just need to restart the browser and uh, it should get installed automatically. Mine kicked in right away for sure. <laughs> Some yeah. uh, request there. Yep. Or just use something else like Brave, but um... <laughs> Brave is uh, awesome. In, yeah. In this case, that wouldn't be it wouldn't be good if you actually read through the article. It said that it affected other Chromium-based things, including Edge, including um, at yeah. Apple Safari. Hmm. So saying that it's just a Chrome zero day is a misnomer. It's it's really another case of JavaScript sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, Chris, it's, it's, you were pretty excited about this one when it came oh, out, right? Well, I mean, largely because I work with a lot of the companies that are doing, you know, secure browsers built on Chromium. Oh, yeah. 
And so, you know, you get companies like uh, Island and then uh, CrowdStrike, you know, putting 40 million into Talon, which won the Sandbox oh, yeah. RSA this year. They're all built on Chromium. And so we question their value proposition and differentiation on another show. But um, <laughs> but this, this puts into question, you know, how secure are these browsers? Because right. one of the challenges these guys have is the first question they get is, does the world need another browser? And of course they say yes, but um, now we're seeing seeing a lot of holes in uh, in, in in the secure browser business, and um, so it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, um, especially as with CrowdStrike and Talon, they invested in Talon just because they needed the functionality for the EDR systems. They it filled a big gap that they that they had from a functionality perspective, but now, you know, now it's kind of a big flag just popped up. And that's why I was excited about this one. Cause you know, it's just looking at the strategies of these companies. Well, and you say, do we need yet another browser when yeah. <laughs> realistically underlying is Chromium in almost all of these, right? So is it, do we yeah. really have more than like two browsers out there at this point? Um, I know. Yeah. The hood. yeah. Maybe we do need another browser based off of something completely different. I don't know. Well, there's always Firefox, which isn't Chromium-based. That's, that's true, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Authenticate does a good job. They, they do more of the isolation side of it. But, you know, Authenticate and Garrison and those guys do a pretty good job. But, but yeah, it's just, but I don't want to pay three grand a year for And And personally, I love Firefox, but we have yeah. so many organizations now on like Google Suite and things like that. You, you almost end up having to use Chrome just for the, the, the compatibility, right? So, yeah. so that everything works well together. And last but not least, we've got a very interesting Apple flaw this week, don't we, Darian? Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. It's, uh, I don't know, comedy of errors perhaps, but apparently if you're using an iOS device or a macOS laptop or workstation and you happen to pair that device with AirPods, then this vulnerability would allow rogue apps to record your audio through those paired AirPods, which is bizarre. Uh, they they dubbed it Siri Spy. Obviously, it already has like a cool name, but <laughs> with the latest round of updates that Apple just released, uh, iOS 16.1, and I think Ventura as well, um, they seem to have shored up this gap. But it's a really weird set of combinatorics that that were at play here as to how this this exploit was was triggered. So the title says it eavesdrops on conversations with Siri. But it sounds more like it can eavesdrop on any conversation you're having through your earpods, yeah? Yeah, so you're exploiting some sort of vulnerability between the hardware and Siri in order to trigger the recording, the arbitrary oh. recording functionality that's that's happening over Bluetooth. So it's, wow. it's really bizarre. Hats off to the, you know, to the researcher who discovered this issue. <laughs> yeah. It also sounds like a commercial for Bose and JBL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think that it, the headline is a little bit misleading because it also says that Beats headsets are affected by it, not yeah. just AirPods. The, it, so the question is, is, are other, besides AirPods and Beats, were other Bluetooth headsets affected? Because it's hitting the Bluetooth stack is what it almost sounds like. Which is surprising because Bluetooth is like the most secure protocol ever invented, right? <laughs> <laughs> this one to me is just kind of kind of a yawner because everybody knows it. 
our smartphones eavesdrop on us all the time. It's just a different way to do it now. So, yeah, who's who's doing the eavesdropping? This yeah, time? yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, thanks for the great rundown, Darian. Now we'd like to do a, a little bit of an interview with Shecky himself. So Mike has been in InfoSec for more than a decade now, right, Mike? I've been in IT for more than a decade. I've been in InfoSec for about eight years as a full-time area. Gotcha. You're a regular staple in the Chicago InfoSec scene, that's for sure. Presenting at places like CypherCon in Milwaukee and Circle CityCon in Indianapolis. I've also been involved with Blue Team Con. And I, I personally know that you've worked very hard to get people welcomed into the InfoSec space, especially making sure that you have a focus on inclusivity and diversity in the field, right? Very much so. And it goes back to my introduction to the InfoSec community here in Chicago. There were people that took me under and I watched how they acted towards others and helped mentor them and bring them along. And I'm trying to pay it forward based off of what's happened to me. We all know the InfoSec world can be very harsh at times. And there's a lot of people with a lot of harsh opinions out there, but showing that the opinions and everything is not what's necessarily behind it all and that there is a human side to it and you can get involved and not have to take it so personally. And, and that's the tough part about it is you get somebody new into there and somebody brushes them off just because they're rushing from one place to another or they're busy and didn't see the message or what have not bringing them in saying, it's okay, there's other avenues. Here are some other spots to do it. This is not just the one way of going about it. You are welcome here and your opinions do matter. One of the things with new people is that they look at things from a different perspective. Bringing that extra perspective in helps keep us from getting stale. The worst thing that we can do is go ahead and just say, this is the way it's always been. Absolutely, I've seen people uh, with no InfoSec experience at all come into a situation with some fantastic insight that uh, that the InfoSec regulars wouldn't have even thought of, but they honed right in on that particular aspect of it. It's insight and it's questions. Right. The, new people, the new people are more apt to ask questions because they know that they don't know and they want to learn. Sometimes just asking that question could go ahead and get your own mind thinking. Exactly. So what would your advice be to folks that are interested in InfoSec and want to break in, but they kind of see the InfoSec world as sort of cliquish and standoffish sometimes. Number one, always feel free to go up and ask somebody something. The majority of people that I've met in the InfoSec world do not bite. And most people, whether it be InfoSec or some other field, are always happy to talk about what they know about. So always just feel free and go up and say, hi, I'm so-and-so and ask a question. Being involved with the meetups allows me to see, oh, I've not seen you here before. Who are you? What do you do? And why are you interested in coming and being part of the community? Absolutely. The InfoSec community, is, at least in Chicago, which uh, I also live in, is usually very welcoming, um, I think, to new folks, folks that hang around with the, uh, the community that you and I participate in that have not been in InfoSec, have often found an InfoSec job within a year due to the relationships they've built just hanging around with others in the community. Exactly. The second thing that I impart on them is the, and I will use air quotes because some of them really are big names, <laughs> at least as far as the community goes. And I'm talking about people that you and I both know, Rob, Robert, like uh, Leslie, like Jake Williams, sure. uh, like some of these people. I ran into this also. You think that they're so big, but 
those people are actually some of the easiest ones to talk to once you open your mouth because they really want to help you out. Even though they're big names, they all encompass both empathy and humility, which I think is important in our industry that to have both of those aspects to your career development. The final thing that I try to impart on anybody new to the field is you need balance in your life. It's great if you have passion. It's great if you're doing InfoSec outside of your day job, but have other things that you want to do. Get away from the computer. <laughs> do something with your hands, whether it be something like model railroading or photography or bike riding or what have not, but you need that balance in your life. Otherwise, you're going to burn out like that. So an interesting fact that you may not know about Shecky, he actually sings the national anthem at minor league games in the Midwest region. Um, how'd you get into that, Michael? I put my InfoSec mind to work. I, a few years ago, I went ahead and said, I would really like to do this. Here's a minor league team that I enjoy that's nearby to me. I'm just going to go ahead and email their contact page and say, do you have open auditions for singing the national anthem? And sure enough, they got back to me within a week and said, yes, we do. Here's when the auditions are. Went out, auditioned, and got a shot to do it. And that's been doing awesome. them off and on since. So you've social engineered your way in. That's beautiful. <laughs> and, and Chris and Darian, as far as, you know, you, you've also have been in the industry for quite some time. Any uh, additional advice you'd give to people trying to break into InfoSec? I was going to say, I think um, I, they, would, they would revoke my citizenship if I sang the national anthem anywhere. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of breaking in, because I've been in cybersecurity for just about 30 years, uh, both with the government and uh, private sector and launching seven different companies. And one of the things I've really noticed that, that I've seen over the years, cybersecurity is a good old boys club in a lot of a lot of regards. And one of the things that we take very seriously at TAG is is diversity. And I think we need a renaissance of of new new talent, new blood. And what you said, Mike, is really, really hit home to me just because of the fact that we need new voices. We need other people to come in, have different experiences, different viewpoints. And, and you're right, it's, we've got to expand and, and, and build the community more more broadly and you know, with, with all these different new ideas. I mentor a lot of a lot of veterans. And one of the one of the things they all want to get into cybersecurity um, or they all want to go work for the CIA. But in terms of what I tell them is really, it's just, I, you know, get your, get your basic education off the ground, maybe go take a SOC 1 test, you know, go mm -hmm. take a SOC 1 course or go off and just learn some of the basics. And then that, that'll carry you into, into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it really is, you can move very quickly in, in cyber, but it's, you just need to get that foundational foundation. And then you're, you know, like SANS and EINS and um, some of these other organizations, even Coursera has some really good classes. Yeah, that's true. Take. Um, I've been actually rec recommending Anti-Siphon, which, yeah. which has a bunch of great stuff, and they're doing, a lot of them are pay what you can afford, oh, wow. which breaks down that level of, oh, I'm going to have to pay $1,000. Well, now you can pay $50, $100, $200. You might not get all the extra perks afterwards, like cyber ranges, et cetera, but you get the course, and it's good, solid courses. And, and a lot easier than $7,000 for some of the more uh, expensive classes out there, which are, you know, they're great training, but if you're just trying to get in, maybe you're not yeah. going to shoot for that high target. And Darian, you had something to add as well, yeah? 
Yeah, I mean, the cybersecurity industry is so vast. It is it is a galaxy of knowledge that it's very difficult for one person to be able to keep track of everything. A lot of candidates feel like they're overwhelmed when they try to approach this field. And I think the best piece of advice that I've heard about is focus in an area that you're curious about, that you actually want to learn and, and explore and enjoy, because it's it's that curiosity that's really going to take you very far in that particular field. You don't, you don't necessarily need to be an expert in everything. It's more like if you can focus a specialty in an area that is you know, truly interesting, that you're passionate about, it will really show wonders in, in the work that you produce. Absolutely. And, uh, and one last bit of advice if you're trying to break in, don't think that pen testing is like the ultimate job to get into, right? It's not for everybody. I had a professor that was talking at an event I was at yesterday, and he said so many, oh, you know, the majority of the students are like, oh, yeah, I want to be a pen tester because they see it in the movies and it looks cool. And then they find out they have to write reports. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're like, maybe this is not the, uh, the, the aspect of InfoSec to get into right away. So don't always think uh, yeah, pen testing is not as glamorous as you see on TV and on the movies. Like Darian pointed out, there's so many different aspects of InfoSec to get involved in. Try various aspects before you settle in on, oh, this is the thing I'm absolutely need to do before you even know what it's about. So Michael, another thing that you've been uh, working heavily in um, and feel very strongly about is going to resonate probably with a lot of our listeners. And it's the fact that people focus too much on buying more tools, buying more tools. And that's not really the, the, the best way to uh, perhaps go about maturing their program. Where, where do you think the focus really should be for a lot of organizations? The focus needs to be on using the tools that you have to the best of their abilities and to their maximum efficiency. And that boils down in a lot of cases to tuning. There is no just set and leave it tool out there. <laughs> right. it, you, might, you might be able to leave it alone for a month or two, but you're still gonna have to go back and revisit it because it's always an evolving situation. Your network is never static. So therefore your tools can never be static. And AI and ML can only take you so far. The whole tool thing comes down to a defense in depth issue. We harp about defense in depth. It is taught till we're blue in the face. Right. And it's not a bad thing. But there comes a point where defense in depth, you don't get the return on investment on it. And a lot of that is because we all know about the shortage of people out there in our field. <laughs> right. You still need that human aspect. So to go ahead and dump tool upon tool upon tool on a small team or one or two people, or mm. even a team of 20 people where they've got 50 different tools, is going to be impossible. There's nobody that's going to be able to stay expert enough to keep it up to date, and something's going to get missed. And then it becomes a security risk in its own right. My thing is, is you take your tools that you've got and learn what their capabilities are. And then once you've got your capabilities taken care of, once you've got it maximized out to your environment, see where your gaps are, then you can start looking at the next tool. But don't just start jumping and tossing tool upon tool and seeing what's going to stick because you're not going to be more secure doing it that way. Right. Um, and in fact, uh, well, when they do just go tool after tool after tool, a lot of times they'll do one of either two things. They'll set the bare minimum on or even worse, they'll turn on every function of that tool. Either one is, is probably not a great use of that particular security tool, is it? 
No, or what you get is you get executives saying, oh, there's a lower cost level of that tool that doesn't give you everything that you need inside of it. And then down the line, you go, oh, well, we need to add on this. Well, there's more money being dumped into it. And that <laughs> takes away from money for hiring on another person. Right. And Chris, you must see a lot of this amongst your client base, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, yesterday, I had a call with the probably a Fortune 3 company. Um, with their CISO and they're they're right now going through one of the challenges of replacing Splunk and they've had it for seven, eight years, replacing Splunk with either Chronicle or Sentinel. After our jaws, we picked our jaws up off the floor. It's, it's really coming down now to a decision. It's all, they said it was very financially driven, hundred percent financially driven, just because of the fact that there, there's just too much information that's coming out of Splunk. And, and obviously that, you know, that starts getting incredibly expensive. So that's one of the things that we tried to point them towards Cobbler or something like that, which would take out some of the noise uh, up front, but it wasn't enough to support their infrastructure. So they're now, like Mike said, you know, they want to hire more people, but they, the problem is they just can't because they're spending all their money, <laughs> all their budget on Splunk. So in Sentinel right now, they're giving away the logging. So that's what, that's what the biggest financial pain point with Splunk is right now is the logging. And, and that's a big mistake a lot of people make. It, you know, the Venn diagram of people, process, and technology is supposed to be a Venn diagram, right? Yeah. Not, not like one big bubble and two little bubbles sort of off to the side. So, um, Mike, and, and as far as tuning tools, one of the areas you've been working a lot in is the EDR space. What have you discovered as you've been working with the EDR and what kind of advice can you give folks about how to maximize that particular tool? Maximizing that tool is really dependent upon what the tool is. And again, it comes down to learning what the tool can do. I'm going to go straight out. I use Microsoft Defender on a regular basis. I moved from Carbon Black to Microsoft Defender. Yeah. Reason being was cost. We were E5 at the time. We were E5 for Microsoft, which included defend the Defender suite in it. Right. And when we tested it against the version of Carbon Black and the level of Carbon Black that we had, we found that they were equivalent, if not Defender was just starting to get a little bit better at that point wow. in time than Carbon Black Defense was, at least the base level of it. So from there, it was a matter of starting to learn, okay, what can I do inside the tool? Any EDR is going to go ahead and have its basic set of rules and everything, and that's the gotcha. Everybody thinks, okay, we get the EDR in place, we get the tool in place, maybe we turn on a couple little things here and there, mm -hmm. and that's it. The tuning on it comes in from... A, knowing what your environment has in it, especially software-wise. Right. And B, understanding that you're going to learn that software and you're going to have to make custom detections off Ooh. of it. Microsoft's system uses a query language called Custo Query Language. It's the same query language that's used inside of Sentinel. Mm. It's the same query language that's used inside of Azure for Microsoft Graph and Microsoft Log Analytics and everything else. So learning that, it was not a big deal for me coming into that one from knowing Carbon Black and even at a prior job knowing Splunk. Okay. It was a matter of just learning what the difference was in the way a query was written. What were the key words for it? And coming from there, one of the first things I did was I created a query that looks up who am I? Is who am I being run? We all know that a normal, everyday, average Joe is never going to use the command who am I from a command line. <laughs> right. You know what does? Skype, Microsoft Office, all these programs use Who Am I just to see if it's got permissions to go ahead and do an update. 
Oh, wow. It was one of the first things I had to tune on it. Do you realize how noisy it is if you just say, let me know when Who Am I is being run? <laughs> oh, my God. So the second thing is, is to use these queries without doing an alert on them until you have them tuned down where you're not going to get alert fatigue. And again, that's going to come in where you're learning about what your environment has in it and what stuff. There's so much software I've found doing this and doing custom detections that does some scary stuff. VMware uses nsudo. Really? As part of its upgrade process, yeah. It uses nsudo, and I get an alert on it every time, and I take a look and see what is, what's going on. I go, oh, somebody's updating one of our VMware servers at this point. Sure enough, there it is. But it's scary how much of these tools, and, and that's what they are as tools, and I don't call them hack tools because a tool is just a tool. Whether it's used for good or nefarious purposes is up to the person at the end of it all. But so much of this stuff that regular systems are using and regular software is using looks bad <laughs> until you get to understand, okay, it's running from this space, from this area, from this spot. And that's how you can tune it down. You know that it's going to be running on machines that are named this if you've got a basic naming convention for specific types of machines. You know it's going to be coming from this directory and this thing. And then you go ahead and say, okay, that gets tuned out. Then all of a sudden everything starts coming down and you start getting the higher fidelity alerts. And through those alerts, the last five years with our penetra yearly penetration tests that we, do, that we have done from an outside company, I've caught the penetration testers always within two weeks. This year, they were told to go more stealth. Last year, we had some juniors that were doing it. And the first thing they did was ran, who am I? And I had them within an hour. <laughs> so I'm surprised actually to hear that Skype would run, who am I? Do other Microsoft like Teams? Is, does Teams do that as well? Do you know? I think so. I could, if you give me a second, I could actually probably look it up for you as to what I've got. I, I, I have it open on, on another screen. I, I can have it open on another screen within minutes. But there were like about six or seven things that we have in our environment that I had to go ahead and tune out just because if Skype.exe is running it, ignore it. If this program is running it from this location, then ignore this. And gotcha. it takes a little bit. But the long run on it is that you're going to catch more. You're going to be a little bit more secure. Everybody wants to go ahead and prevent somebody from getting in. We all know that that's not possible. It's never going to be 100%. Right. How fast you can detect somebody coming in can get somebody out of there before any major damage is done. And, and that's where the tuning comes in. Right. And, and what you're describing is, again, getting back to the basics of knowing what's in your environment and standardizing your environment too. If you know that you have Skype running in your environment and that's gonna be how you do internal communications, then you can start tuning based on that. If everybody's down, uh, able to download whatever they want <laughs> to do some sort of chat and Wi-Fi calls and things like that, tuning for that becomes impossible. It becomes very difficult, yes. And as I said, I'm using Microsoft Defender as the example because that's what I'm working in regularly. I know Carbon Black has its own way of going ahead and setting up custom detections and custom queries. I know that Palo Alto and everybody else out there has the same sort of thing. It's not just a Defender thing. Learn what your customizations are. Play with it. You can set up those customizations and those queries without running alerts. Just doing that is all it's doing is like working inside of a sim 
where you're doing backend database queries on it all after things are getting reported in and saying, okay, this is what we've got in here. This is how I'm seeing this. And how much, how much would this alert on it? And then right. keeping it down until it becomes a manageable level. Then you turn it into an actual alert. Chris and Darian, and anything to add onto um, what Chicky's laying out for us here? Just from an EDR perspective, I think, you know, enterprises need to, especially small, mid-sized enterprises need to actually be very deliberate about which vendor that they decide to go with. Most organizations don't have the luxury of having a guy like Mike on, on the team that knows what it is. Most of these, they're kind of accidental CISOs. So that's just kind of one of the challenges. And it's just, you can't just deploy and fire and forget. It's, you know, you're absolutely right. You've got to tune it. You've got to make it work. But even with, you know, obviously with Sims too, but that was one of the big challenges that we had when I was doing assessments and pen testing. It was mm there was so much noise, we could run a marching band through their infrastructure and they'd never find us. <laughs> I was going to say, I said this year, it took me two weeks to go ahead and catch them. We actually had caught them earlier than that, I found out. We had work being done on deploying our EDR to specific systems that was generating so much noise that we didn't get the first alerts. No, we didn't even notice yeah. them because they were working with Microsoft on the back end. So they were testing and testing. And then we had the pen test come in. And that's actually something that could happen in a real world scenario. An attacker doesn't know when you're doing stuff. An attacker isn't going to say, oh, they're doing nothing. So I'm going to attack right now. <laughs> right. You have to be able to get through those sorts of things. So that's that's another point very well brought up by Chris, is that you got to go ahead and make sure that you can see through that stuff. And uh, Shiki, to, to close here, a lot of our listeners actually don't have the luxury of having someone like you on staff. So if you were to give one little bit of advice to an organization that doesn't have a security team, but just wants to move the needle a little bit, what would be your advice to a company like that to just get a little bit better at security? Know what you have on your network. Not something that's, that's highly technical. There's software out there that'll go ahead and do it. I know a lot of these small, smaller businesses are being targeted by Microsoft because of the way Microsoft's offerings go. If your EDR tool has a discovery mode, mm. use it. It will right tell on. you so much just about your network and what you've got out there. And that's the biggest thing. It's the most overlooked thing, I think, especially in a small business, is knowing what's out there. Great advice. And, and definitely goes back to that basic hygiene approach to doing InfoSec, right? If you can at least just get those basic hygiene things down. Um, and if you're looking for a guide on that, the, the Center for Internet Security has their controls broken down into levels of hygiene and achievability that, and uh, level one for them is that basic hygiene. So that's a great place to start. The other piece of advice would be to talk to other companies in your field. Oh, yes. CISOs, right. <laughs> and see what, see what they're doing. Eventually, they're, somebody's, somebody along the way is going to come up with something that you hadn't thought of. Absolutely. In fact, if you can find a, a local meetup um, in, in your own town, People are so willing to talk, and that brings us right back to, you know, Michael, what you talked about in the first place is the community is there to help get connected with your community. There's a lot of us out there like yourself that's just so willing to offer advice just while socializing, just over a, a drink at a meetup. So we definitely appreciate that about you. And with that, thanks for a great show, everybody. It's been fantastic having you here, Shecky and Darian and Chris. As always, you provided great insight. Please tune in next week where we're going to have special guest star Kevin Johnson, 
who is a CEO and security consultant at Secure Ideas, giving us some insight from his experience in the InfoSec world. And with that, thank you, everybody. Have a great week.